The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's all about The Rock today. Celebrating 40 years of possibly the greatest rock and roll record of all time, ACDC's Back in Black. The album was originally released on July 25th, 1980, 40 years ago. Hard to believe. It was produced by Mutt Lang and was the first to feature new singer Brian Johnson, who joined after the death of Bon Scott. And since Back in Black's release, it sold over 50 million copies and is now the second best-selling album of all time, behind only Michael Jackson's Thriller. So in honor of its 40th anniversary, I assembled the biggest ACDC fans I know to talk about Back in Black. I got Bubba Ray, Bully Ray, uh, WWE Hall of Famer, Anthrax drummer Charlie Benanti, and Fozzie guitar player Rich Ward. We're doing a track-by-track, sharing trivia and stories about ACDC, Bon Scott, Brian Johnson, the recording process with Mutt Lang, and how we all discovered the album and the band, it's a tribute to ACDC's Back in Black coming up today on Talk is Jericho. And coming up this Thursday at 9, episode 2 of the Winnipeggers, Dave Spivak and Ribo join me again on YouTube for another hilarious 30 minutes that we titled When Nature Calls. Uh, you got to watch it on my official YouTube channel uh, and you'll find out why. Lots of great stories on there, including the, the uh, time I threw up all over myself on a plane ride with Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash. You're going to want to hear that. And of course, I'll be with you live again this Saturday for the Saturday Night Special 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and my official YouTube channel. Bring your beverage of choice, your questions, your suggestions for the sing-along. Come hang out with me live for the Saturday special, 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and on YouTube. Lots of stuff going on, lots of Chris Jericho during the pandemic. I'm here to help you if you want me to. And don't forget, of course, AEW Dynamite on Wednesday. But in the meantime, in between time, let's go to Back in Black, the 40th anniversary celebration with Bully Ray, Charlie and Rich, right now on Talk is Jericho. Let's just get into it here. We, we all know everybody here, and I kind of assembled the biggest ACDC fans that I know, cross-section of uh, musicians, wrestlers, and some of us are both. And um, it's amazing, everybody that I've said that, oh, I'm doing an ACDC 40th uh, Back in Black uh, podcast, it's hard to believe that it's 40 years old, but yet it seems like it's been around for 100 years. It's just that type of a record. You talked about it being 40 years old. And to me, the fact that it stands the test of time is that whenever one of these songs come on either terrestrial radio or on satellite radio, I feel like I'm hearing it for the first time. And I, and, I, and, and I know it's not. I've been listening to these songs for 40 years. 
but it's just that ACDC groove and vibe that just catches you from the very first note that's played. And that's why to this day, the, this, you know, the whole album is part of like my, my top 25 that I just keep playing over and over again. Now, Charlie, you mentioned that this is even higher. You said this is top five for you back in black. Oh yeah. Easily. It's my, in my top five records of all time. I mean, I love a highway to hell. Uh, that record to me, uh, what Mutt Lang did to ACDC was pretty much said, okay, this is the way it's going to be now. And they completely like changed. I thought it was not, not, they were writing songs that were just so clever and yet heavy. But then what was to come after that back in black, man, it just took them to another level. It's such an interesting time because uh, obviously with the death of, of Bon Scott, you're in a position here where there's a band. It kind of reminds me a lot of, of with Cliff Burton and Metallica uh, or, or the Rev in Avenged Sevenfold. We have a very integral member of the band passing away just as they're on the verge of making it huge. But obviously Bon Scott's one step further because he's the voice of the band. And to me, that's why it's such an interesting rock and roll story that they were able to, to become so big as a result of losing basically the most important part of the band at that point in time in the seventies. It was really interesting when I, I watched a couple of interviews with Tony Platt, who is the engineer on the record. He also did uh, uh, highway to hell with Mutt Lang. And he, he made a kind of an interesting point, which was that, um, that Bon Scott's appeal was never going to be as big as Brian Johnson's. It was something about Brian Johnson's kind of working class. Um, and there was something about him that even though that they may have lost some of kind of their punk rock sensibility, and there was something about Bon Scott that was that quintessential chaotic rock star, but Brian Johnson kind of brought them into the face and the voice that could be what you would hear on what you would kind of become the voice and face of American radio rock of that era, which I thought was interesting because I never thought of it. I was always thinking like Bon Scott was the, was the front man, but Brian Johnson's appeal was just more open to more people. And I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought it was at least an interesting point that he, from his perspective. I can definitely see the point of view of Brian Johnson having more mass appeal. And I was probably nine or 10 when I heard Back in Black for the first time. So my first introduction to ACDC was Brian Johnson. And, you know, just loved him as a singer for ACDC. It's all I knew was the first voice I heard. But once I got older and I discovered some of those Bond songs, wow, the, the pull to those songs was incredible for me. Um, I, I really love those Bond songs. And I mean, I mean, Chris, we know from the wrestling, you know, point of view, when somebody passes away, you know, like, you know, like um, Animal could not replace Hawk in the Road Warriors. So how do you replace, you know, Bond Scott in ACDC? It almost sounds like an impossible task. And there they, they go get Brian Johnson and, and pull off one of the biggest feats in the history of rock and roll with, well, is it still the number two best-selling album of all time? It is, yeah. It behind, is. Wow. behind Thriller. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that, that's insane to me, just that point. Charlie, let me ask you this. Were you an ACDC fan prior to Back in Black? So, so how was it for you when you were a teenager, I'm assuming, when, when you know, one of your favorite bands, the singer, dies and they get this new guy? All I knew was that 
Bon Scott died in Paris, you know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of information coming out about it, you know? It was just like Singer dies in Paris. Uh, and then later on, you find out what happened and everything like that. Um, but the weird part about him passing away was six weeks later, Brian was in the band. And didn't Bon uh, mention uh, yes. Brian to, to to the management or something or introduce them? It's just funny how that whole thing worked out. Uh, it was almost like he knew and he was like setting it up. Like, I'm going to yeah. go, but here's the guy that's going to take it to the next to the next level for you. And then what? Five months later, that record was out. It it's was funny crazy. We're all smiling because there was, I don't know if it was in like, cream magazine or circus magazine back in the day they had the cartoon and the cartoon was that bond went to a, a, a was a, a a working man's club where there was some band on stage and then there's a guy on the ground just screaming and screaming and you know it was brian johnson and his band he's just screaming on the ground on his back and then he found out that he was his appendix had burst <laughs> yeah that right, right. was exactly why i was laughing so funny. i knew you i knew it yeah it was so crazy because brian tells the story about when bond saw him and he said that bond's initial reaction to him was probably not an honest one because he thought he was putting on a total iggy pop performance because <laughs> he was lying on the ground agonizing in pain and then Ow. they they stretchered him out into the ambulance at the end of the gig and bond thought that was amazing punk rock theatrics where he really was sick <laughs> and if memory exactly. serves me correct wasn't the name of the band jordy yeah jordy yeah jordy yeah. It's funny because they actually did a um, version of A House of the Rising Sun. And I remember hearing it on the radio once, and I could never find ACDC's cover of House of the Rising Sun. And it took me years to figure out that that wasn't an ACDC song. It was a Jordy song with, uh, with Brian singing. Were you going to say something, Charlie? No, that's, I was just laughing at the whole thing. Um, but like I said, I think it was uh, maybe Bond saw this and was just kind of saying this is the guy for you guys. But um, the, the one thing that, that always struck me was that um, for the most part, I think ACDC fans accepted Brian Johnson. I mean, I know a lot of people who still to this day won't listen to anything yeah. past. And I never understood that. It's like, look, it's not this guy's fault that this happened. You know, uh, I think he's a perfect perfect replacement for that band you know I, I agree with you on that and to the to this day you still go and i get it to an extent if somebody's still alive you know never you know never accepting you know bruce Kulick and kiss because ace fraley should be the guy or whatever it may be tommy thayer but in in this case the guy died you know that's like getting mad at newstead because cliff died or getting mad at jakey lee because randy's dead it's like either they get somebody and continue on or the band is done, and that is terrible for everybody. Now, the thing I want to ask you guys, it's a lot like, I was going to mention this earlier too, it's a lot like David Lee Roth and, and Sammy Hagar in that they're both unbelievable singers, but in two completely different ways. I find the same thing with Bon and Brian. They're two separate singers, and ACDC, instead of getting somebody that sounded a lot like, like Bon, they went for something completely different. Still in the same vein, though, but much more of a powerful singer, than Bon Scott was. You're right. Bon was a character too, right? I mean, and I guess right. I guess Brian had a little bit of that where he had the kind of cap gimmick that he kind of adopted, I guess, on a few months after he'd been in the band. 
But it's like you said, you couldn't replace him. You can't replace David Lee Roth. You can't replace Bon Scott. And I think going back to what you said, I think one of the cool things was uh, the guys, I think the the young brothers at some point had, had said that Bon's dad approached the guys at the funeral and said, hey, you got to continue on. And mm-hmm. so when you get the blessing from the family and there's this sense of we're at the cusp of something great. Something else I saw that was was interesting was that Highway to Hell wasn't a commercial success until right. after Back in Black came out. And then it was kind of this current that once Back in Black became this massive record, it started to pull all the old kind of back catalog with it, which was great. It, it Not to say that Bond's achievements weren't, weren't worldwide weren't known worldwide but it was kind of cool how his back catalog some of those lesser known records kind of like what bruce dickinson did for that first iron maiden record once maiden became a huge band all of a sudden people started to to kind of discover the back catalog of the stuff that wasn't a hit the first time around which is cool you know when you kind of look at acdc now the four of us were probably all you know older 40 50 whatever when we look at acdc from its inception until until right now and you hear all that bond stuff you almost say to yourself how is this guy even replaceable like his his swagger his sound his voice what he brought to the table by giving acdc that edge and that gritty dirty sexy feel it's like sometimes i say to myself wow how were they able to replace him but in my mind they they never replaced him somehow they found a, I don't want to say better version, but a version that could take them to the next level, which if we were, if we were in our twenties, when Bond passed away, we would probably all be like, no way this band can't carry on because we were so, you know, uh, you know, so into Bond as a lead singer. So when you sit back now and you look at it to see what they were able to do, so would they have been able to do with that with Brian from day one? And would they have been able to do that with Bond if Bond was still around? I don't think so. But, you know, one thing one thing that uh, I think Rich said, uh, which something that I remembered when they put out Back in Black, I don't think the record company in the U.S. was ready for that thing to explode the way it did. And if you remember, they put out Dirty Deeds after that oh, yes. because, because um, there was nothing. They had nothing. And I think that confused a lot of people because it's a totally different singer. So they put this record out called Dirty Deeds, which is just all old stuff. It's basically the first and second record like combined with different things. And I think that was really confusing for, for a lot of people because they weren't going to get a new ACDC record for a while after that. Yeah. And to, and to your point, I saw that the, like it took a long time for the chart position to catch up. So back in black, like you said, I don't think... Was it Electra? Is it who put that out, or what? Or Atlantic? Atlantic. Atlantic. I think Atlantic. You know, had their expectations kind of based on what Highway to Hell had done, and uh, and it just took a while, as we all know in this business. Like when 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 the sometimes the wave is ahead of of the apparatus trying to catch up with it. Back in Black went number one, right? But it took a while. Is that correct? I don't know if it went number one, but it's possible. Went to number four. Number four. I think. It came out like people were really into it right off the bat, just kind of scanning here. But one thing kind of to back up what what Bubba was saying is that there's a great book, if you guys haven't read it or people listening, it's called uh, The Last Highway. It's just, it's the book about Bon Scott. And the guy's name is Jesse Fink that wrote it. I had him on Talk as Jericho a few years ago. And he, he said that ACDC was not a success 
uh, with Highway to Hell. It wasn't. It was not the you know the, the story that we like to believe is they were poised on the brink, but they really weren't. And when Bond died, he had thirty three thousand dollars in the bank. Like he was not privy to the success of of ACDC. And it's one of those stories that you hear, you know, that Randy was about ready to quit and go play classical music or that, you know, James and Cliff were ready to fire Lars and all these legendary things that the the band was already discussing getting rid of Bond, A, because the record company didn't think he could make it to the next level. But more importantly, he was starting to fuck up his gig by being messed up all the time. And if there's anything we know about Steve Harris and Iron Maiden and the Young Brothers, Malcolm Angus and ACDC, is they don't, the band comes first personal feelings and problems aside so it seems like that could be a possibility that they were ready to get rid of him i don't know if that's exactly true or not but the fact they're able to find brian and like charlie said put back in blackout basically five months later i mean nowadays you have to submit the album art five months before you know and the masters seven months before before it's so funny in a weird weird way like with uh, with them being able to release an album only five months after uh, Bond's death, it kind of gives me hope that if we ever get one last ACDC album, it's going to be like epic because it seems like, you know, Angus was able to do his best work, you know, despite the fact his lead singer passed away. And now his brother passing away just might yeah. give him that, you know, that inspiration to write that one last great ACDC album that I think every single one of us w- would love. Okay, so there's there's moments of the ACDC years that I, I love, I love For Those About to Rock. I love, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't crazy about Fly on the Wall, is that, the, is that yeah. one? But the last two that they put out, I thought were great. They're I really Yeah, Rock them. or Bust and Black Ice too, but they both got some great stuff on it for sure. Now, now but, but was it you, Bully, that said that uh, Back in Black went to number four? Yeah. You nailed it, number four. It did go to number one in Canada, which once again shows that Canadians are much smarter than Americans. But yeah. and, number, and number one in the I got it number number one in the UK. And it and it I look what it when I looked up and it said it was on the charts for 131 weeks straight. So wow. Yeah. But just think about too, like think about the cover of the record. I mean, we laugh about it now because of Spinal Tap, and then obviously, you know, the black album, probably the most famous heavy metal album, but but Back in Black's the first of this. And I wonder what the record company first thought when they said, here's the cover. It's none more black. Apparently you know? it was rejected. They said they weren't going for yeah. it. But, but the really? Young Brothers stuck to it. Yeah. I saw them do an interview about it. And basically they said it was basically a wake. An, you know, a wake for Bond's life. That's And they wanted it to be black like the arm black, the black mm-hmm. armband. And the record company said no. And they're like, nope, we're sticking with it. So... You know, I want to ask you guys a question because I find this interesting. You guys being, you know, in your business, I'm I'm the fan here. So this is, you know, this is really cool for me. Chris, you talked about how Steve Harris and the Young Brothers, you know, ran such a tight ship and how ACDC is this well-oiled machine. What does it say about ACDC and Al- Angus Young? If you can get Axel to be on stage every on time every right. night, I mean, you guys would know better. Well, I mean, that, that just shows, I think, you know, the, the fact, and that's another thing that Charlie was saying before about how people were complaining that, that Brian Johnson was in the band. It's the same people that were complaining that Axl Rose is in the band. I was like, take a fucking step back, guys. What are you complaining about? This is like if Paul McCartney joined the Rolling Stones. 
Like you've got the two, like put James Hetfield on rhythm guitar and you've got the ultimate rock and roll band, Charlie Bonanti on drums. I mean, what more do you guys want? And so by putting Axel in that position, A, he sang it great. He had so much power. He brought back some of those songs like Problem Child that they haven't done in years. And he showed up on time and stood in the back. Yeah. And that was the thing that I noticed was that when he sang, he'd stand parallel with Angus, never crossed in front of Angus. And then once he was done, would go back to his little table back by where Stevie was and Cliff in the in the back line. And I and I to your point, Bully, I think dead on, I think no matter how famous somebody is, there's always somebody who is the true Yoda that, you know, at that point you you bow down to. And I yeah. think I think the legacy of ACDC and having Angus up there really demanded if you were going to take that had so much reverence and so much responsibility that came along with it you just didn't want to screw it up not not for your own reputation or or not for angus but for the institution it's like it's like yeah. it's like subbing for the pope for, for like <laughs> six months <laughs> you better be on time on sunday <laughs> the thing about it too is 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 that you know i love the fact that People always say, like, ACDC, well, you know, this band's got this gimmick and that band's got this gimmick. But, you know, ACDC just put on the jeans, the T-shirt, and I'm like, bullshit. ACDC has the biggest gimmick of all time. Angus Young. I mean, come on, right? Like, that's as big as, as Kiss with their makeup in 1977, as far as I'm concerned. And with a gimmick like that, I think it says a lot about the band that they were all smart enough to stand in the back because if you had five guys doing what Angus was doing, it would never work. But the mm -hmm. fact no. that you had an entire, you know, rhythm section holding it down for him and Bon Scott or him and, you know, Brian Johnson, obviously to go out there, it was the perfect balance. And, and Chris is so right because schoolboy outfit running all over the place. I mean, he could have been a cruiserweight, you know, in, in WCW. <laughs> Another thing I just want to I just want to throw in there too when you were mentioning before about Axel being with ACDC, I was talking to Rod Smallwood years ago and um, kind of picking his brain a bit. We went out for lunch when we were in um, where's that place Brighton down by the by the oh, by the, yeah. the by Concord the ocean too. Yeah, the Concord. You ever played the Concord too, Charlie in Brighton? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right by the rocks. So he came and saw us and and um, I was just picking his brain like. You know, talking about Iron Maiden, how big they are. I said, well, who's bigger than you are? And he's like, well, you're Springsteen or you know, U2 or, or Metallica in some countries. Other countries, we, we, we kill them. But he said, I lay awake at night trying to figure out a way to get bigger than ACDC. And that was like, there you go. Right there. Ross Smallwood saying that. Did you ever see ACDC with Bond, uh, Charlie? Nope. Obviously, none of us ever. What was the first year that you saw the band? I saw 1980, 81. At the Palladium, Def Leppard, I, I believe, opened up. <laughs> ACDC was it for me at that point. I, I learned how to play every song on guitar. This is when I was really learning how to play guitar, and I knew how to play every one of those songs because they, they, were, they were infectious. You know, you couldn't help but trying to figure out Hell's Bells and Back in Black. One thing about Back in Black to this day, it still gives me goosebumps when it comes on and I have to stop whatever I'm doing and just listen to it. Okay, good. Let's go. You know what I mean? It just <laughs> has that thing about it. And it's just like that funk. It's so crazy you say that. Like the first two records I ever learned how to play guitar to were Highway to Hell and Back in Black. They were like the templates for the ABCs. And if you listen to almost every 
Fozzie and Stuck Mojo riff, I've completely ripped them off and that their, <laughs> pa- their pattern of four over three is my template on everything. Like they're the only band that the drums are constantly on four and, and Angus and Malcolm are constantly on threes grooving those upbeats. And it, it was that's what that's where that stadium head bounce thing came, because people always say, you know, the drummer is kind of responsible for that big pocket. But it was the relationship between the four on the floor and then, you know, and then obviously Cliff during those choruses where he would just kind of do the drone open note while the chords changes. But if you always think about it, like shoot the thrill, but got that, that. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three. Mm. And every guitar riff, like, let's go down. What do you do for money, honey? But, uh, da, 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 da. It's all three. It's all the guitar in three and drums on four. But the drums were always hit on the downbeat of that. And the guitars would yeah. be like, and that's where that little kind of pickup where you, every time you see you're at the basketball game and back in black comes on and the guitars are in three and everybody in the whole place is air drumming and head banging. (laughs) How many bands can do that? Like in any environment? No. And the one thing that ACDC, I remember back in the day, people were like, Oh, that's so easy to play. It's like, uh, no, it isn't dude. You you try and play an ACDC song like that. You won't get it. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Ask this, Joe, because obviously you're one of the. We always say you're, you're one of the pioneers of, of blast beats, if not the initiator of it. One of the greatest thrash metal drummers of all time. Not just saying that to blow smoke, but yet you love, you love Ringo and you love Phil Rudd and you love, you know, Fugazi and you love all of these. You know, Dave Matthews Band. How does a guy with your skill level, with the double bass and 15 toms, relate everything back down to Phil Rudd and his four-piece? little shitty Sears set that he still has the same one or Chris Slade for that matter. Phil Rudd was always like one of my idols because Phil Rudd, man, the way he played, he made it look so good. You know what I mean? And what he was playing was he was so locked in with Cliff. And that's the one thing I loved about those two. The the, the brothers were playing their thing. Like Rich said, they're, they're on their threes, you know, but Cliff, and Phil, man, they were locked in. And we we did a cover of an ACDC song one time with D. Snyder. And, uh, dude, that was tough. Which one and was I, it? I could. Uh, what song was it? Uh, Walk all o- Walk all over you. That song's so amazing. Yeah. And oh my god, you know, it's like you know, I I could play fast stuff, you know, polka beats, but when you're just relentless playing that song, dude, it's you can't like tire. You're, you you got to be up the whole time, you know, and it it was uh, it was very intense. So when I went to see them on the Black Ice tour, I went on stage and everything and sat behind Cliff's kit, and it Phil. was it wasn't it wasn't uh, Phil's kit, and it wasn't anything great. It was an old kit, an old sonar kit. The heads needed to be changed, and I'm like, 
this is it. This is real right here. What I'm seeing, you know, leave the heads on. They sound good. You know, I think, I, and I think, I think to, to kind of what, what Charlie was saying to you and Bubba in relationship, I bet Ray Mysterio sees Hogan drop the leg, the big boot and still pops because the artistry of simplicity, you know what I mean? There's something about like the master Ingve still watches Angus and Malcolm and still loves it in the same way that I can't play like Ingve. But anytime you see someone master something so specific and something so brilliant and so, uh, and there's such a signature, like that's the one thing about ACDC, right? You never mistake them for, now there's a couple of bands that come out in the last 10 years who kind of have that similar sound, but still, you, you know, the real for Memorex ACDC has, it's such a definitive thumbprint. And I, I think there's something that all of us, whether it's Slayer or Anthrax or with this easy top or ACDC, somebody that has such a definitive sound that's, you know, that's kind of defined an entire genre. Everyone in everyone in the business looks up to them. What do you think, Bubba? Well, Chris, it was interesting listening to you ask Charlie about the simplicity of the playing and why he appreciates it so much, as opposed to, you know, the going crazy and Phil Rudd, you know, he keeps it simple. You know what it's like to grab a headlock in the middle of a ring, which to modern day wrestling fans can seem so boring. But if you work that headlock the right way, you're going to get more of a reaction than wrestlers who go out there and do, you know, 450s and super kicks mm. and everything like that. And I think Phil Rudd is is a perfect example of somebody who can keep it simple and so exciting. But I wanted to ask Charlie, like, what always amazed me was Phil Rudd's ability to hold that beat for like 14 minutes when they played Let There Be yes. Rock Live. Yes. Like how, yes. like, how difficult is that to do? That's what I was saying. You have to hold it down. You can't, oh my God, you can't weaken or anything. You have to keep that level up all the time. And it's just like watch watching that dude back in the old days, just dun, 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 dun. it's flawless. And that's why I said, man, people don't think Phil Rudd's a good drummer. You're wrong. He's well, I, one of the best. And that's my point too. Keep it simple, but there's nothing simple about that. I challenge anybody that could just go like this, one, two, three, four, and hit the bait. Now do that for 15 minutes straight. And here's the cool thing about it. Obviously Phil did it for years, but, but I don't know Phil. I do know Chris Slade who said on the, they did a the, the bunch of those shows in like 91 with Pantera and Metallica and in, in Russia in front of like 500,000 people or whatever. And Lars and Tommy Lee used to stand on the side of the stage and bet each other how long it would be until Chris made a mistake on the Let There Be Rock. On the, I guess whatever it was said on the, was it the 14th on the, on the, yeah, he, on the he said he would drop yeah. it to the eight. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And he said the only time he made a mistake is he would, he would not a mistake, but to make it easier, instead of hitting eight, he would hit seven and keep one up just as a little bit of a rest. And you're talking about that also with banana, banana. Now do that for 14 minutes as a guitar player. And then the whole thing, ACDC is the greatest rock and roll band of all time because they are a well-oiled machine because of the Young Brothers and now because of Angus and whoever he chooses to play with them. But it's not open auditions. It's Steve Young. He's in the family. It's Chris Slade because they played with him before. And that's the way it is. They're not going to get Dave Grohl coming in and playing for the for, for ACDC as much as people want to see that. One more thing about Phil Rudd and... Um... The other thing about him that I love is the restraint. He, most drummers would want to do a fill. No, he's just <laughs> keeping it going, keeping it going, which is to me is like one of the greatest things, because like I said, most drummers would want to do a fill and stuff like that. 
but Phil just keeps it straight. Sorry. He's, he's, no, no. He's, he's no Phil Rudd. <laughs> and I, I, I was going to say that I think part of Phil's magic uh, as well, from my estimation, is too, is that we all know as, as, as musicians, we always talk in terms of the note, but it is obviously it's the space between the note where it's where the pocket happens and Phil's his ability to kind of create that space. And he knows that Malcolm swings everything. So as those guys are swinging things in thirds, it's like it's that relationship of how those guys play together. And it's I guess it's like a basketball team of them kind of knowing each other so well that they know how to play with each other in in they become one organism. And I think it's that kind of Phil's ability because he's not spending all that time showing you his vocabulary. He knows his job and his job is that space and creating that pocket for those brothers. It's a team. We all know this. We always, it's so easy to get caught up in Paul Gilbert's the greatest guitar player of all time. Look at him. He's amazing. But Paul Gilbert in the right band is it could be the greatest band or Paul Gilbert in a band he doesn't play well with could be the worst band of all time, even with the greatest guitar player. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that we all, we all get, whether it's wrestling or rock and roll. Right. But the thing is too, you know, those guys, you know, rhythm and blues, if you look back to like uh, the James Brown band, those guys really never took a fill until James told them to take a fill. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So it's like, they would just kind of play, play and watch James, watch James. I think that's what those guys do. They watch Angus, you know, and Malcolm is just bopping up and down, just feeling like there's a pulse to ACDC that I think if you're not in ACDC, you don't get it. Let's uh, let's talk about the album. We'll go into a little bit of a deep dive here. We'll talk about some of the songs and that sort of thing. So Back in Black, which, by the way, uh, you guys were correct, uh, the top five selling records of all time. Anybody care to guess what number five is? Is it Rumors? No, it is Whitney Houston, Eagles? The Bodyguard soundtrack. Wow. That's number my th- that's my number one. <laughs> <laughs> number four, Dark Side of the Moon. Number three is uh well you'll never guess number three either. And oh, I had him on California? Ta- no. Is it I, not I, up there? No, when I had him on Talk is Jericho, he told me I was like, come on, your uh your buddy's father-in-law, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell, the third uh, highest wow. selling record of all time. Good for Still him. Good. <laughs> yeah, and then of course you got Back in Black at fifty million, and then you got Michael at sixty-six million, which will never be touched. So uh, I'd say that's a pretty good track record to be number two. Wow, I thought I thought the Eagles' greatest hits was in the top five. Yeah, I, Eagles, I, thought, I thought so also. Eagles is number six at forty-two million, uh, and then rounding it out is BG Saturday Night Fever, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, and Shania Twain. Come on over. That's that's. That's according to Wikipedia, which, of course. That's right. Uh, Mutt. Mutt's Mutt, got yeah. two. Mutt's got two. Hey, wrestling fans. And he got to bang Shania Twain, too, so nothing wrong with that. July 25th, 1980. So next week is, is the 40th anniversary. Uh, it was recorded uh, in Compass Point Studios, which all of us. Hey, Charlie, you recorded at Compass Point Studios. Yep, I was there. We was, talked about ACDC there with the people. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a famous one because the police recorded there. Iron Maiden recorded there. You too. You too. So what yeah. record did you guys do there? Uh, Among the Living. Wow. Among the Living. So what did you, uh, so how was it being in that, in that studio where Back in Black was recorded? Uh, a funny story about it. We, we flew into uh, Compass Point. We got set up in like these condos and everything. And right next door uh, was Robert Palmer. He lived there. 
Um, <laughs> and we would we would see Robert Palmer every day taking his boat out, and he'd wave to us and everything. But funny story: the first night we got there, there's this bar down the street, a little little kind of dive bar. I think it was called Sugar Sugar, not Sugar Shack, something like that. But anyway, you two were just finishing mixing there, and Bono and the Edge were at this bar. Just a funny story. Just coincidentally, here's you two finishing the finishing the Joshua Tree as we were going in to start that record. <laughs> did you ever cross paths with them? Not, no, not then. No. Later yeah. on, we did, and we we told them that story. And and Bono looks to Edge. He's like, "That was the Bahamas, you know." A couple of scrubs. <laughs> yeah, bunch of New York scrubs walking in there. <laughs> it's still it's still my favorite one of my favorite stories when uh, Adrian Smith met Paul McCartney. He's like, uh, what band are you in? Uh, I'm in Iron Maiden. You might know. Oh, you're the you're the guys with the monster. <laughs> 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 so um, that's the problem with saying, oh, you're the, you're the New York street thugs. Um, so let's look at this record. Um, well, well, I mean, before we get in, I want to do a, a little bit of a track by track. But before we get into it, I mean, what's the first time you can remember anything about this record, hearing about it, seeing it? Um, and Charlie, it might be you because you probably maybe bought it in the stores when it came out. I don't know. I did. I, I, I got it. I didn't get it when it first came out. Um, I got it like in the fall, like a few weeks after, because back then I didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> so it's like, mom, mom, please get this record for me. Anyway, uh, and I remember just putting it on and just being totally taken away. Every song on that record to me was amazing. There wasn't a bad song on that record. My only complaint about Back in Black is that the record should have started off with Back in Black. Interesting. That's right. It does not. It does not. Um, my first memory of it, I went to uh, like a, my mom's side of the family's Ukrainian. So we went to Ukrainian camp. It was called Camp Shaban with my cousins, Chad and Todd. And you learn how to like, you know, Ukrainian dance Russian and like, you know, make little <laughs> crafts and arts and stuff. But it was right in the middle of, like, I think it was 81 or it was 82 because it, um, Number of the Beast was out. So we were really freaked out because Ukrainian Catholic are very much like, you know, Catholic, like don't touch your pee pee or you're going to go to hell sort of thing. And everybody, when the, when the counselors went to bed and the counselors were just teenagers, we were playing Number of the Beast. And I remember that scared the shit of me. And the other one that scared the shit of me was Hell's Bells. I remember because of the bell and the rain coming down. I literally remember with my cousin Chad, like, this is too scary for me. Like just the sound effect in the middle of the forest was freaking me out. And then it comes in. So I re literally, the first, my first impression of ACDC was I was scared of them because they were singing about hell. This is insane. For as long as we've known each other, I don't think we've ever talked about this. No. And I had the same exact experience. So my cousin Joe was a huge ACDC fan. And I th think at probably 10 years old, I borrowed the cassette from him. And I remember being at my home in my family's kitchen and my mom and dad must've been outside or something. And I was babysitting my sister who was in her crib. And I put the cassette on and I remember hearing the, the gongs of the bell for the first time and being terrified. I remember my sister <laughs> in her crib, like just laying there and, I, and I'm like looking around so if I can see my parents outside because I was so scared from hearing that bell. And every time I hear that bell, I'm, I'm brought back to that spot in my family's kitchen, you know, watching my sister. It, it, it really was chilling and it completely scared the hell out of me. Rich? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Hell's Bells has the most uh, evil lyric of any record, and that includes Slayer and King Diamond and Deicide, <laughs> which is, if God's on the left, then I'm sticking to the right. <laughs> right. I was like, like when I That's heard heavy. that, I, I mean, that's so heavy because it's like, you know, a lot of the other stuff was kind of imagery and spooky, but this was like, this was none of this. This was just no nonsense if God's on the left that I'm sticking to the right. And I just, and and they didn't look evil. Like I remember the first time I saw, you know, Kiss Alive 2 and I thought this band is so evil. And then I heard the record. And I was like, oh, this is not as nearly as evil. <laughs> and then you see the ACDC and they seem like guys who like, you know, like hang out with your dad at the motorcycle <laughs> shop. And then you hear the record and it's, it, they come across, like you guys said, I mean, Hell's Bells is a very dark, and as the guy said, it was it was their kind of send off to Bond, which is I think they captured that, you know. Well, and then let's talk more about it. Lyric, though. Well, here's the thing, because they say that that the there's no Bond. Sc- See, there's this is where the, the 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 legend goes different ways. One is that they use no Bond Scott lyrics because they thought it would be, uh, uh, you know, taking advantage of the dead. Uh, and then there's other people that say there was a book with lyrics in it. I don't care what anyone says. If God's to the left, I'm sticking on the right. That's a Bon Scott. You know, rock and roll is noise pollution. Come on, who would come up with that other than Bon Scott? I mean, it seems pretty obvious. They have admitted, uh, I wrote it down here, that Have a Drink on Me had already been demoed with Bon on drums. And I, and I read that. Yeah, wow. and What You Do for Money, Honey, had been a leftover track from the Power Age album. So we know that some of this material had existed. Those the two songs that they acknowledge were previous tracks that they brought forward, kind of like Van Halen does. If they had previous jams, they right. brought forward. She's the woman or whatever. That's right. But so we just don't know how much of it was fully realized or, or if they were just like little you know, ideas in a notebook that they wrote down on tour. And I don't think anyone's kind of cop to that, right? Here's something I love in this day and age. If we needed a bell sound for one of our bands, we would just find one online or we would just manufacture one on a, on a synthesizer. Uh, here's how they found the bell. Uh, they decided they wanted a bell. So Ian Jeffrey, the manager, located a foundry to produce the bell, but it took seven weeks. So he suggested that Tony Platt record a nearby church bells. The recordings did not suffice due to the sound of a flurry of birds flying away at each bell hit. (laughs) (laughs) Those damn birds are screwing up our recording. So uh, they waited for the foundry to finish. And when they they got it, it was perfectly tuned. So there you go. (laughs) They they dropped it down an octave. So the original bell, they recorded it and then dropped the speed of the tape by a half. That's why it's the... so that they wouldn't have a bell the size of your living room. <laughs> and apparently that bell hung over Malcolm Malcolm's uh, outdoor kind of uh, courtyard at his house, the original bell. The thing, the thing about that song too, before we move to the next one is it's one thing I really noticed when, um, when Axel took over for Brian Johnson and they did hell's bells. And I remember some interview, one of the rare interviews that Axel did is what's the two hardest or what's the hardest song to sing? And he said, thunderstruck, and Hell's Bells. And I was like, Hell's Bells, really? When you listen to it as a singer and really get into it, that song is hard, hard, hard. And to hear Axel do it with his full power, it made you remember just how crazy Brian Johnson's range was when he was, you know, that age in 1980. Yeah. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! 
It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, so we move on to uh, second. So you guys probably know it off by heart. We all do. It's uh, Shoot the Thrill. Now, what's your thoughts on that, Charlie? Uh, it's my favorite song on the record. Like Back in Black. Every time I hear this song, I have to stop and just I have to just play along to it. There's a section in that song where it's just Angus and Phil um, and Phil's laying into the toms. And as it goes and it's building to like this crescendo, he's laying into the toms and you could hear the mics open up and you just hear this brilliance of, of, a, of a recording. And to this day, I still get goosebumps when I, when I think about it because that song to me is ACDC, man. It just starts and it just doesn't stop, you know? And I, I hear a little bit of stones in that song. Mm. I hear a little Gimme Shelter. My favorite song. What do you think, Bubba? I, I got to agree with Charlie. Uh, you know, if if the theme from Rocky makes me want to go out and fight, shoot the thrill, <laughs> makes me want to go out and drink and have a great time. It just <laughs> something makes me want to drive fast. It just makes me want to do something. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it's got that 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 driving feast. Like like you know, you guys hear these songs. You know, a, as professionals, you know you know what it takes to write a song like this, perform a song like this, but as fans, when we hear it, and like I said, you know, earlier, when I hear shoot the through, when that, oh, nah, 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 it's like, that's it. Like you said, with Back in Black, Charlie, everything stops. Shoot yeah. the thrill, everything stops. Let's just, yeah. let's run as fast as we can and put our head through a wall. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just say, shoot the thrill is the opening track for every uh, busted open show. That's a bully show that he hosts on Sirius every day. So there you go. Rich, what do you think about the Shoot to Thrill? To me, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I would, I would probably say Back in Black's my favorite song. Shoot to Thrill is, is just behind it. And one of my favorite things is the guitar riff that kind of uh, after the da-da-da-da, but when the first gets da da it's actually a drum beat, right? I mean, it established, like, you could still start to bob your head just to the riff. There's no, like, like, Phil's not even in yet, and we're already on board. And yeah. that's the cool thing about those guys. It's like every guy in there is a, a freaking riff, a rhythm machine, and there's so many sub hooks it's not just the vocal it's the drum part it's the it's the guitar if there's so many hooks it's so brilliantly put together and one of the things that uh, is the best is that mutt lang's trying to push the band into this kind of commercial radio thing and and the band is trying to push to be the heaviest rock and roll band of all time and then in the middle comes like the perfect storm of the heaviest, greatest radio rock band album of all time and if you listen to the lyrics like once Brian comes in, are you willing? Like all of a sudden we're into like, like Charlie was saying, almost kind of James Brown-y, you know, Mick territory where it's got this, it's got bomb that's ready to blow. It's got this like kind of bob to it. It's not your standard kind of rock and roll. Yeah. It's got a rhythm and blues vibe to it. It's a you perfect know, song. You know what I love about it? We're, we're talking about Phil. And once again, he's, he's a lot like Ringo. And, you know, Lars has adopted this to this day. He plays what's right for the song in the beginning of that, of that, like it just comes in with the perfect fill. That's not, 
Another thing I love about that too, and once again, like Charlie said, it's my favorite song on the record. It's definitely the best ACDC song that was not a hit. They play it every show and concert though, so to me it is a big hit. And I just, I love one little part of it. It's something that Bond never sang about. Uh, shoot to thrill, play to kill, too many women, too many pills. They never talk about pills in ACDC. It's only about drinking and whiskey and, and have a drink on me. And I thought that was interesting because we know that Bond had a lot of pill issues to the point where the rumor is that he even died from drugs, but they, they, they hid that because ACDC is a drinking man's band, not a drug-taking band. So to hear that lyric so prominent, I always thought that was very interesting to me. Do you know what Brian we, uh, Oh, good. Go ahead, sir. No, I was just going to talk about the performance of that song. It's like, to me, there could never be another performance on record like that song. It's just the way it all came together, each one of them. It's like, I don't know if they recorded it live all together or if each one of them did their parts, but it just sounds like it was just a moment that was captured. And I'm so happy about that. <laughs> yeah. Tony, Tony the, the engineer, he actually said all of the album was recorded live. The only overdubs were a little guitar lead bits and then the vocals. And he said that we just kept doing takes until we got the, the right energy we wanted. We got the... Uh, his exact words. I wrote it actually down because I thought it was genius. He was looking for feel, technical accuracy, tuning, and a track that captured the spirit of the song. So like those were the check marks. They would just wait until the, the stars aligned and they got that take. And then Angus would come back and either do some lick stuff or whatever. And then Brian would do. And he was actually saying that Brian was working on lyrics and they didn't have the lyrics and melodies written while the mm. music was being cut. He was in the studio. I, I read that on. too. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, that's funny. It's funny you said that because um, if they did take after take, then where are those takes? Because if there's going to be a 40th anniversary, then yeah. could I hear these? They're so notorious for being so locked down though. You know what I mean? They, they I can't see ACDC doing any bonus tracks or anything. Oh, they did do the bonfire box set. So who's to say? Hey, Chris, I wanted to tell you one thing. I, Brian Johnson did. He Somebody asked him about the pills thing to ask him if that was a reference. And he said that he wrote it about society, about society was numbing themselves. Oh, I shit. know. Exactly. I think that was his chance of kind of doing DC, DC writing about society. We wouldn't be here. If yeah, taking, too, taking too many pills. <laughs> it was like all the women in the suburbs right. are taking Let too many pills. Did they write, what do you do for money, honey, about uh, a girl who uh, has a job at the grocery store <laughs> Bubba, what, do you think, what do you think of that one i think that bond probably walked up to some girl in a bar and said what do you do for money honey <laughs> <There you go. laughs> what do you think of the song every single song on this album is either good or great this is a good one and this is one of those songs that you know i can just groove to and you know i just mm. i just dig it there's there's nothing that really particularly stands out. If like somebody says, hey, what 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 song are you going to listen to off of Back in Black? I'm not going to listen to What Are You Going to Do for Money, Honey? But I'm definitely not turning it off. Right. I, I feel the same way because I think ACDC, we've, we've heard it so much, uh, uh, the Back in Black record, that when you hear What Do You Do for Money, Honey? It's one of the few songs you're like, oh, I know this song. Which one is it? Oh, it's What Do You Do for Money, Honey? So in that respect, I always appreciate hearing it. But if you're talking about your top 10 songs on a perfect record, by the way, this would probably be number seven or eight for me. But still, you know, for any other band, this, if this was like a, a dirty look song, it'd be their best song ever. 
What do you think, Charlie? But what do you do for money? Uh, I love it. It's a great song, but in in context of the record, that's where it works on its own. Maybe not, you know, not so well as Back in Black or You Shook Me, but um, in context with the whole record, which is something about ACDC. Remember, they were the ones didn't want their record up on iTunes for single. You couldn't, you had to buy the whole thing, which makes total sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the, of the sequencing of the record back in those days is so important. This is a perfect third track. What do you think of, uh, of What Do You Do For Money, Rich? Same thing, perfect formula. Charlie plays four, Rich Ward plays three. Dot, <laughs> got, dot, got, got. And it's it's the thing, it's, they swing it, they got it, they know it. And that's the thing is we nobody sits around counting that stuff until you start to really dissect it and you're that mechanic who tries to figure out why this car is so much faster than everybody else's. Then you realize that formula is just genius. And they, they, I think they're one of the only bands who really did that so well. And it's, it's almost like a thumbprint on every song. It's perfect. So let me ask you guys, a, is, as a fan, when I hear ACDC, it sounds simple. Are you guys saying that it's much more difficult to play or write than it sounds? I'll say it. I say it's harder to play than it, than it seems to really lock in with the band and get it right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There's little, there's little, there's these little nuances that each guy puts in. There's a part in what do you do for money, honey? During the verse, where Angus and Malcolm just let the E ring out. It's so amazing that they didn't bother with the riff. They just then, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah, just let it go. So good. Just let that E ring out. It's fucking awesome. You know, no, so little it, things it, like that. That's right. It's, if it's, you heard Charlie, he's doing the beat on the down. He's doing the guitars on the up like that. And those are things they they do it so flawlessly. It's, you just take it for granted. But it is. It's a thumbprint that it is. It's not that it's necessarily difficult to do technically. It's that to do it as efficient. Well. I, to, to do it the way I, they did is what yeah. is hard, right? I, I, it's something that I heard Keith Richards say once. He said he's never heard, rarely heard somebody do a Stones cover properly because he plays in that weird tuning with five strings. And he said there's just nuances that unless you know, you know, and most people don't know. And I think it's the same thing for, uh, for ACDC for sure. Given the dog a bone, uh, this one is one of my personal favorites. Once again, it's, it's not a, a hit, but... Um, it's another one that I would have to think Bon Scott had something to do with uh, in one way or another. But um, just it's, it's such a killer tune and they still play it live once in a while. They did it when, when Axel did it. I just love that she's using her head again. She's using her head again. It's so high and oh, it's great. Great tune. It's just another one of those songs. It's the fourth song that you... Uh... When the when the one before it ends, you just immediately you know go right into it, you know. And you could not write a song like that nowadays either. Giving the dog a bone, like you know, aka you know, smell the glove. What do you think, Rich? Well, a- Anvil could do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, I I love all of these songs. Like I, they're literally like all of the songs could be in my top twenty favorite songs of all time. It's so funny when you take them all for granted until you say, "Hey, let's listen. Let's do this podcast." Then you listen through the album with kind of a, a new ears, thinking, "Hey, let's talk about it." And then you just like how. How does anyone say there's a, a a greater rock record? Even if you were to say, I mean, how could you, 
Yes. How could you even say it? Even the guys in guns would have to say, no, nah, it's back in black. Yeah. And and give it a dog a bone. Once again, Charlie, four on drums, guitar. <laughs> I don't know. 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 And it's just another thing, oh. another thing I want to point out to that I forgot to mention is that this these two records, and, and to a lesser extent, uh, for those about to rock, these are the Mutt Lang getting his hooks in ACDC, no pun intended. His background vocals are all over this record, but most specifically on this. She's given a head again. Like there's not Angus and Malcolm. She's given a head again. Like it's all Mutt Lang with his that You could take that and stick it in a Def Leppard and stick it in Shania Twain and stick it in a Brian Adams. It all, it's like touch too much. It's the same thing. That's all Mutt Lang on the, on the, on the background vocals for sure. What do you think of this tune, Bully? It's same thing. It, it's another good song, you know, when when it comes on, you know all the words to it, jamming to it. I'm I'm in agreement with all you guys. All right, now here's the one song that was a little bit of a of a, a curveball. Let me put my love into you. Basically, an ACDC ballad, which ride on notwithstanding, which is more of a kind of a slow blues. So I've never heard an ACDC ballad before, and it uh, it took a while for me to get into that one. Isn't this kind of similar to uh, Lick My Love Pump by Spinal Tap? It's the same type of uh, sentiment. <laughs> um, th th this song for me is probably my least favorite of yeah. the record, but it's still great. Let me give it all. <laughs> you know the way it is. I, I, think, I think right after uh, Bond walked up to that girl in the bar and said, what do you do for money, honey? And she looked at him. He said, let me put my love into you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because we had a uh, we always have a debate, especially with the guys from Avenged Sevenfold. What's the perfect record? And it has every song has to be A minus or better. And this one teeters on the line of A minus for me, but I'm still going to give it an A minus because Back in Black is, is the perfect record for sure. This song is amazing. It's just surrounded by like Olympic athletes. <laughs> it's like, right. Yeah. It, it suffers from like all of its cousins, you know, just did better. I love this song. I think it's a great song. I think it's, again, this album uh, is definitely would not survive cancel culture in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> it's never. Can you imagine like the executives in HR at the label like making notes on this thing? It's now, amazing. Now the, only band that, now the only band that can get away with a title like that is Steel Panther. Sure. Only because they, they, they have the, the ability to play it off at, as it's supposed to be comedy, right? Right, yeah, exactly. But if you're playing it straight, it's never going to happen. I do think it's cool, though, because I don't think that any of these songs were meant in a, like, even when you listen to some of these kind of Dr. Hook songs, like uh, Spend of the Night Together, and it sounds really rapey on it. <laughs> like You're like, I don't know, man. That song's really not right. Uh, and some of these songs have that thing, but I think, within the context of the time and also the sense of like, this is kind of pub rock, right? This is guys being guys in a locker room laughing. It's never meant to be taken at face value. A lot of the stuff's tongue in cheek, just kind of locker room, fun, blue collar humor stuff that guys would say on a job site. And I don't think any of this stuff is ever meant to be demeaning or looking down at anybody i just think it's kind of a sign of kind of coming out of the late 70s early 80s and blue collar uh working class people and, and i 
you know, so as much as it may be shocking to, you know, to someone who's 12 years old and figures out who got away with these lyrics, well, they did. And it's just because it was just a different time and a different mindset. And it's, you, you can't, we can't judge uh, the past by the sensibilities of today, right? Absolutely. I mean, the ACDC were notorious for these kind of like sex rhymes and stuff like that. But uh, they have songs like uh, Sink the Pink. You know? <laughs> yeah. They just got worse. <laughs> Especially <laughs> the plot. They just got worse. <laughs> it's funny. I remember, I remember I, once again reading Circus Magazine. It's like, ACDC, again, the kings of the double entendres. And I, I like, what, what, what is an entendre? Entendre? <laughs> entendre? Couldn't go, couldn't go on uh, uh, Wikipedia and look that up. I actually go to, had to go to an encyclopedia or a dictionary or some shit to figure it out. But... Let's go to what could be possibly ACDC's best song. Charlie mentioned it earlier, uh, the title track, Back in Black, which starts off with the great... Like, what the best intro, that's not even an intro. You know what I mean? Like, you could take the drum intro for, uh, you know, Aftershock or One World or whatever and throw it out the window. You should have just went, one, two, three, four. (laughs) What do you think, Charlie? It's such a hook. It gets you so excited for what's to come, you know? I mean, I've spent (laughs) years listening to that with headphones on. If you listen closely, you hear Phil go, one, two. (laughs) And you have to pull that song way back. If you push it, it it does not work. It's got to have that funk, that grease. And if it doesn't, it's just right. It's not the same song anymore, man. And those guys, I wonder how much attention to that was was put on Phil. Like, pull it back. It's too fast, you know. And that that song all the way through is just that. It's so awesome. Let me throw this at you, though. We talked about this when we get into the Beatles discussions. How much of that was left on Phil? How much was it just natural for those guys to play that way? You know, did they have to sit there and go, this one you, 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 you play really laid back, Phil? Or is that just how he interprets the song? Because that's the type of player he is. If I'm going to model a song prior to that, I would probably say Highway to Hell would be close to Back in Black. But the heaviness of Back in Black was something that they've never done before. So right, I don't right. know, maybe, maybe it was Mutt saying, you know, pull it back too, you know? What do you think, Bully? I remember one time in the gym, I skipped over back in black on my iPod. I immediately dropped the weight. I went to church. I went to confession and I said, 10 uh, Al Fathers and three Hail Marys. <laughs> That's, it. That's it. Otherwise, I thought I'd burn in hell for skipping over back. Like, it's like, what are you going to say about this song? Like Charlie said in the beginning, everything stops when the song comes on, much like shoot, shoot the Thrill. There is no not listening to Back in Black. When you when you go to other concerts and they're playing songs before you know the band goes on, you hear Back in Black and it almost gets you as pumped up as the first song for the band. Um, it's, Absolutely. Yeah, it's just it's. There's really nothing. It's back in black, period. End of story. That's the great quote right there. It's back in black, period. What do you think, Rich? I think it's the greatest rock song of all time. I've always said it's my desert island. One one song on an iPod, and I'll take that one, and I'm good forever. And I think it's a perfect song in every way. I mean, I I think to, to jump on the back of what Charlie was saying is that Phil had a great responsibility. And I always wonder, because most of the time, we'll, we'll call it 95% of the time, it's always uh, driven by the drummer 
setting pocket. And I always wonder in bands like that, if it's Malcolm or I'm excuse. Yeah. If it's Malcolm or if it's Phil the same way that you wonder if it's Lars or if it's Headfield, like there are certain anomalies where, you know, there's a guy cause you can always feel it. You can feel it at the beginning of hell's bells, the way Malcolm is playing that guitar part. You can feel him dragging so far behind the beat and you can feel him establishing this thing. That's, it doesn't sound like they played these, these songs to clicks, although they could have, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, they but, yeah. Yeah. But you can definitely, regardless, we all know that if even, with a click you can still play you know and drag behind the click like you would a um you know a skier behind a boat you can kind of hang behind the kick drum and really drag that beat behind and you can really feel that and even in the guitar solo i mean who would play that solo like there's nobody who would have done that they would have like there would have been another thing but the fact that he chose those little those little holes to kind of poke through just to kind of introduce his solo piece it is like to me it's a flawless and, you know, then we've got the verses, this big pocket. And then when they go into the uh, same same formula, they go into that pre-chorus. Da, 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 da. And, but the bass is riding on the drone note with the kick drum on the floor. And the guitars are doing these up. And every part is a signature part. Everything is a hook. It, the whole song is a hook. It's just hook A, hook B, hook C. I wanted to ask a question uh, of Rich and Charlie because listening to them break down the songs and, you know, oh, he must have been feeling this at this moment and he played it like this and there was some drag. You guys being the musicians, is there a chance that if you would ever ask, you know, Angus this question or Phil Rudd these questions, they're just like, no, that's just what felt right at the time. And there's absolutely no thought put into it. Absolutely. Who knows? Uh, Back in Black could have been a song that was just like, all right, let's get this done. And then they spent more time on, uh, you know, have a drink on me, you know, who knows? But uh, Back in Black, it just sounds too perfect. Yeah, that was the one thing that I will say that uh, I've heard Malcolm Young talk about why he calls ACDC rock and roll versus rock or versus hard rock. And he was saying that rock and roll has a swing to it that is more in line with old school music, which he talks about how he likes to play behind the beat. And he was talking how they have way more in common with the Rolling Stones because of that, like that tip of the hat to old school rock and roll. So if I had to guess, I would say they're very aware of it. Like just like all bands, it's like one of the things that makes, you know, thrash music so aggressive is you, I'm sure Charlie can speak to this way, way better than I can is the acknowledgement of where they're playing on their toes on the front of the beat in order to create energy. So there's places in the song yeah. where doing and create anxiousness. You're pl- you're actually rushing the beat just slightly. And then maybe for the chorus to create more of a release, then that's when you get right. a little bit behind the beat and that's when the groove opens up. And so as, as musicians, we're, we're constantly aware of where the down is and where we play around the down is what determines our kind of how we're, creating energy in the song the same whether it was the Beatles or whether it's Pink Floyd all of I think that most everybody's at least has some awareness and and their thumbprint may be more connected to playing behind or playing in front where James Hetfield you can kind of feel he has that anxious down picking right hand which creates that energy where I hear Scott uh, in Anthrax, he he has that same thing, but I feel that he grooves it differently because his pocket is, is different. Even though the technique may be the same, they're playing in different spots of the beat, which gives them their kind of signature sound. Rich Ward, Muso. Which, uh, Muso which is funny because <laughs> no friends. I never, with certain bands, I'll always talk to like, hey, what do you put in your monitor? Like, what do you hear? 
to get you through the show, you know, and they'll tell me, I hear this, I hear that. But for me, it's like, I don't hear any bass or anything. I hear Scott and Scott usually will push, push me. You know what I mean? Yes. So if I'm just, you know, rocking out I hear him, nah, 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 nah. you know, it's like, there's this tension that, that is building. And, uh, I think that's, that's music right there. Definitely there. I'll say, uh, two last things on back in black. The, the, the one thing I think it was the ball breaker tour, when you're when you open with Back in Black, you know you've got a lot of fucking hits because they open with Back in Black, and I was like, holy shit! Like every other band was like, that's it, but like they got they kept going up. And then the other thing is this song features a rare bass fill from from Cliff Williams right at the fade out when he goes You really got to pay attention for that. I remember listening to that as a kid and turning up the stereo as loud as you could. Ah, there it is. Uh, and then, of course, their biggest hit. It's their, uh, it's their, you know, Stairway to Heaven. You Shook Me All Night Long. And I'll start with this one. This is a song like Enter Sandman or, I don't know, name any, any huge Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand or Stairway to Heaven or the classic of classic songs where you're like, I never have to hear that song again. Until it comes on somewhere where you don't expect it. You're just like, this song is amazing. Dude, get out of my brain. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and then one more thing I love to say is that I love how Brian, uh, whatever the line is, knock me out with those. If it's, if it's not America, if he's in Canada, it's those Canadian thighs. It's those Swiss thighs. It's those, you know, Lithuanian thighs. What a great way to connect yourself as a lead singer to the country that you're playing for. Uh, Bully, you take over on you, Shook Me Long. I thought I was going to be the only one of that opinion. Like, I don't ever have to hear the song again because I've heard it so much. And I remember the first time I heard it played at a wedding, I was like, all right, nope, that's it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm listening to ACDC at a wedding. It's crossed over too much. And, you know, and everybody pops for the song because, you know, it's the only freaking ACDC song that they know because nobody at that wedding would really be listening to ACDC. So, um, right. but you're right. If it does come on, it's it's against all rules and regulations. You can't just turn you can't turn it off. Rich, to jump on the back of both you guys, it is like Hotel California, and that you think you've heard it too many times until it's two a.m. and you're driving down the road and it comes on. You're like, that's one of the greatest songs ever written. I, it's crazy how that is. Every band has that song that you feel like is overplayed, and but what makes it great and is that everybody still wants to hear it, and it probably is their greatest quote-unquote song that my wife likes it you know and my mother-in-law probably likes it and and those are you know it's universally loved because it's a it's a great jam and it i think it's probably the only song on the album that doesn't have that darkness kind of that heaviness to it right because the whole album has a bit of a broodiness uh and a, a hint of aggro and and this is the only song that feels kind of more along it could have been on an older acdc album where it has more fun but a little more playful is that is there any other yeah. songs that could have that kind of playful thumbprint this may There's be a it, few right? but i mean like you mentioned earlier, this is this is a a tribute to bond in a you know in a shrouded way so this whole record but what do you think charlie uh, I love this song. It's like Stairway to Heaven to me. But if you break down the song uh, for what it is, it's like uh, almost like a rap song. Um, he's just rapping over a beat, the verses, uh, and the other guys are just waiting to come in. And then there's that chorus. 
how catchy is that chorus? It's a pop song, but it's way better than a pop song. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's something that your grandfather could dig or your little two-year-old gets into, you know, it's just, it just has this thing about it. And it's, it is a bit kind of up than the rest of the record. I don't know, man, this sounds like Bon Scott lyrics to me too. Yeah. And I'll say one other thing too. I mean, I agree with you on the Bon Scott lyrics. Another one, I, I always call this the karaoke killer. Whenever you go to a karaoke bar or someone's doing karaoke at a house or something, it's much like Rich taught me about singing happy birthday. Everyone starts too high. Whenever you go see happy birthday, <laughs> happy birthday. To, and they're like, happy birthday. Right. That's the same thing with you shook my life. I was like, I'll sing this. And you get through it okay. But there's a lot of lyrics in a short period of time, not a lot of air. And then when it hits that chorus, you shook me all night. Like you got to be ready to go. Are you going to be up there going, holy shit, this sucks. <laughs> I've seen it happen you, a million times, man. <laughs> did you ever hear the story about how Mutt tried to change how the, the song structure yeah. was? No. It used I to love be, that story. So, right. She was it a was, fast was, machine. She kept a motor clean. And Mal was like, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's gonna be hard to sing. I don't care. I don't care, Brian. Do it. <laughs> Let's go to a song. Whenever I hear it, I feel like I'm late to get on stage because we used "Have a Drink on Me" as our intro music as our one before the show uh, for years. And so whenever I hear "Have a Drink on Me," I'm like, where's my stage gear? What do I got to do? Once again, another classic non-hit from the record, but this is probably the strongest non-hit on the record for me you know and, and once again I, I i don't care in my little fantasy world uh let me just read the lyric to you right here don't worry about tomorrow take it to get today forget about the check we'll get hell to pay i mean that's got bon scott written all over it you know and if he didn't write that malcolm wrote it specifically saying what would bon do <laughs> rich or Baba, go ahead, Bob. No, Bob. I was just going to say that one lyric, don't worry about tomorrow, you know, take it today, especially in the world we live in right now. Yeah. So much uncertainty. It's like that lyric just rings true. And I'm into death. Like, I always ponder, like, what if the Grim Reaper tapped on your shoulder and said, you got five minutes left? What would you do? Who would you call? What would you say? So that that line right there, don't worry about tomorrow, rings true for me. It's it's mm. all about, you know, enjoying every moment, <clears throat> like hanging out with you guys right now and enjoying it for everything that's worth. Because I could walk outside of my house and get hit by a bus. It would take two buses because I'm not selling for the first time. <laughs> you have to hit you like this. <laughs> <Mother>. <laughs> so I really love that lyric. How about you, Rich? Yeah, I love this song. It's great. I love how it's it's uh, it's same same kind of structure. It, it, the only difference is, is that there's a lick. It's like ACDC always has like one or two songs on the album. That which is oh yes and, and it's like the thing is he even swings the lick like angus and eddie van halen are maybe the only two guys on the planet who can make you bob your head to a like a solo lick they just swing everything and it just feels so good i love the lyrics i love the structure everything about this song is like a 10 out of 10 for me and like you said i used to love it that it was our one to go it yeah. was like oh just such a great song Phil's playing on his genius too. Phil's playing on this is, is an awesome. And my my favorite moment of the song is the end when it comes back in after the the breakdown. I have a drink on me. Yeah. 
Gonna roll around, gonna hit the ground, take another swing, have another drink. Get the fight's broken out, baby. Yeah. yeah. What, what, hey, what if uh, Brian Johnson is like a serious lyrical genius and wrote most of these, <laughs> and the whole time we're we're sandbagging him? We're like, but the thing oh, is, couldn't have been him. My Must only thing, Malcolm. my only thing is, and, and maybe he was into the into the groove of this, but but after blow up your video, they relieved him of his songwriting duties after that record from Razor's Edge on. It's all songs and lyrics by Malcolm and Angus, so. That's the only reason why I'm thinking maybe he wrote some of this and maybe he was influenced by Bond, but that only goes so far. You either, it's like trying to write a David Lee Roth lyric. You might be able to get one or two right, but after a while, you got to be inside that guy's mind to really get it. But, but like after yeah. listening to every interview you've ever heard Brian Johnson do or any interaction any of you may have had with him, do you think Brian Johnson wrote any of these lyrics? Well, he's a pretty funny, fun guy. So yeah, I can see that. And maybe he was influenced by Bond to, to try, let me, what would Bond do? But some of them are pretty hard to to think that it could be anybody with Bond singing. Like I think "Shake a Leg" could be a Brian Johnson term because I don't see Bond Scott ever using the term "Shake a Leg." <laughs> Shake a leg, maybe. Yeah. Hey, and like Alice Cooper, he's a great lyricist. I think some people role play, and it, and then the question is, is like some people, like athletes, they have a th there's this period of time where they have make they make great art, and somewhere along the way whatever the mojo or maybe they're just not as committed to it because they're raising kids or they're picking out tile for their swimming pool and they're not as hungry as they used to be there is certainly a case to be made that a lot of those lyrics were written because the lyrics on back in black seem from from my opinion or from the outsider's view to be more in line with what acdc was doing previous to brian johnson but i always think it's funny what if he's just sitting around saying you son of a bitch <laughs> how come nobody's giving me any love it's like everyone just assumes i stole it yeah here's the best line from this magazines wet dreams dirty women on machines for me big licks skin flicks tricky dicks are my chemistry Going against the grain, trying to keep me sane with you. So stop your grinning and drop your linen for me. That's either a... Uh, drop your linen. That could be Gene Simmons from the Asylum <laughs> record. <Yeah. laughs> oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, Shake a Leg. Uh, it's got a, a good chorus. It's fun. It's the, I, uh, I think this is the fastest song on the record. Yeah, good point. As far as mm -hmm. tempo goes, it's, if not the only one. I mean, the fastest song on Highway to Hell was Beating Around the Bush, right? Right. Yeah. This so, might be the fastest ACDC song to date. And this is faster than Beating Around the Bush, isn't it? Or maybe not? I think Beating Around the Bush is a little faster. Right. But but this is kind of fast, too. But I, I, I always love this song. And there's if you listen to this song, it sounds a little different than the rest of the songs. Mm. The drums are a little different. Just listen to it. The snare drum is a little tighter. Mm. It's not as fat. Maybe it was recorded later on. Who knows? Got a lot of bon of uh, Mutt Lang in the chorus too. Shake a leg. Did I ever tell you my Mutt Lang story really quick? Uh, we were doing a photo session in, in Manhattan and there's like this gourmet cafeteria. We took a break and we all went in and we all wanted Jamba Juice. So we're sitting at Jamba Juice and at the corner of my eye, I see Shania Twain waiting online with Mutt Lang behind her. So I say to everybody, who it is and, and we were like holy shit there was no place to sit and i guess shania saw us sitting there she comes over 
and she sit, she sits with us and starts talking and everything. And then Mutt comes over and all of us, <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad about it now, but all we wanted to do is just talk to Mutt, you know? <laughs> and it, it was, it was kind of weird, but it's like, dude, I just had so many questions about this specific record. He was awesome. And she was awesome too. Did you ask him anything that's, about that's, the record? Oh yeah, we talked a lot about the record, but he didn't give away like any any big thing, you know. He's you like, know? Charlie, but, there was a notebook that was left in a safe. Yeah, right. It said BS well, on the cover and it's filled with lyrics. The first thing I would have said too, like like right now, if I he was sitting here, I'd be like, Where are these outtakes? Where are they living? You know, why don't they put them out? Because it's always been a weird thing for me, like uh, with Led Zeppelin, like they have so much stuff, but they still have yet to put out a lot of the cream of the crop. And it's like, what are you waiting for? Right, right. You know, it was interesting what Charlie said, which was that he noticed that this song sounded differently. And I noticed in a couple of interviews that Tony uh, Platt, the engineer, said that he and Mutt used to like to wipe the console after every song and mix each song for the song. So uh, where most bands back in the day, for, for the sake of ease and continuity, they would set the console for the album and they may make tweaks based on each songs. But he said they because the, each song had its own identity and its own kind of energy and different tunings, they would intentionally wipe and take everything, take all the EQ and everything, put it back to zero and mix from scratch each song so that they weren't influenced by the mix of the previous one so that each song got its own individual best effort and he said at the end they remixed the first song they did because they were making such improvements and they realized hey the first one as sometimes happens but it was awesome yeah. that you said that because he said they were treating every song like it was on a separate record it listen to certain delays as the song ends you know dan you'll right. hear like a a different millisecond uh, delay on certain things on his voice, you know, it's always these little things that I pick out like, Oh, that's strange. That that's different than that one. You know? So that totally makes sense. of just wiping it all clean and starting fresh every day, which, which is crazy. That is crazy actually. Yes. Yeah. Right. Especially for a pro record. All right. So we bring it to the, to the last, which always confused me when I was a kid, rock and roll ain't noise pollution. Uh, growing up in Canada, I had no idea what noise pollution was. Maybe the New Yorkers here are a little bit more familiar with that term, but I'd never heard it before. Uh, is it all you middlemen? Is that what he says? All you, all you middlemen, the opening, opening lyrics to that? Yeah. Didn't Mutt Lang ask him to say something on the intro and that's what he came up with? I guess I just didn't know what a, I thought a middleman was like a, a soldier from the Confederate, Confederate war or something like that. But um, I think middleman is like like drug dealers, right? Like the guy maybe. who buys from the buys from the big. Yeah, that's yeah. what I always thought. it was. Any way you slice it, you know, this is a grower, not a shower. But but what a great tune. What a great way to end off this record, because as a kid, you always wanted, you know, we're all the same. You got to have your, your album closer, which is a, a fast one or a thrasher. You got to open hot. You got to close hot. These guys did none of this. They opened with the thunderstorm and the bell and the and the and the slow riff, and they ended with just this classic blues song. But I love the final line: "Rock and roll is just rock and roll, yeah!" Bow. See you later, guys. Great tune. It's a mic drop lyric. Exactly. Exactly. Thoughts, Bully? Anything else on that one? Uh, it it kind of reminds me almost like uh, "God Gave Rock and Roll to You" by Kiss. It's got that that kind of anthem feel to me. 
it's quintessential. Like like Rich talked about how it's ACDC is always rock and roll, you know, and not rock, it's just heavy metal. It's, it's like ACDC occupies this certain spot. And I like this song because even though it doesn't feel like an anthem at times, it has such an anthem type, you know, you can almost see, you know, Brian Johnson standing at the top of a mountain, holding the rock and roll flag of ACDC, you know, screaming, you know, at the top of his lungs, you know, rock and roll ain't noise pollution. Yeah. What do you think, Charlie? This song, I, I love the intro and it, what I always pictured is Brian sitting in like a vocal booth, but the stool with a pack of cigarettes and a lighter and uh, he just gets a cigarette out and lights it up, you know, and then he blows it out and he just says what's on his mind and then uh, says his part and he goes, let's go. And then when they all come in together, it's just so awesome. And Phil's just hitting the accent. And then, uh, it's just fucking brilliant, you know, just only they can do this can yeah. make a and Van Halen, too. Their records captured this party type of thing mm-hmm. or this 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 mood and when i hear this song it just puts me in the mood you know heavy death yeah, it's just <laughs> awesome rich and isn't it ironic that we all probably can agree what charlie just said that acdc and van halen probably in this genre made the most classic records and it all came down to those guys playing so well together and cutting live in a room, rehearsing the songs over and over, working them out with the producer, talking things through, cutting in a room. And even Tony Platt said, the engineer, he was saying he didn't know Brian Johnson. But what to what your point was like, hey, you could see him sitting there in the vocal booth with his, you know, his ashtray. And he said they spent a lot of time getting Brian Johnson comfortable and like hmm. we don't really didn't know him so the idea was create he said we worked on the lighting we worked on what part of the room he liked to sit in we you know we just kind of made him gave him his area where he felt like he had atmosphere and vibe I thought it was interesting because it's I think most people they walk into the studio the microphone's already kind of set up you know you know yeah. where you have your little stand for your lyrics and stuff and a guy cuts Whereas on for this record, they thought enough of it that they thought about the esoteric side of things. It's like, you know, <laughs> let's think, let's, let's, where do we need to put this guy in his best position? And that's what Tony kept saying over and over again is like, mm-hmm. we wanted to make a record that was special. And it wasn't about the notes, but it was how the band played the notes. And it was about how to put these guys in a place where they could create something that was magic. Yeah. And they did it right. I mean, I can't name a record with the exception of maybe Van Halen one where there's that amount of magic that you just hear on every track and just go down it and think it's a flawless in a performance by a flawless band. It's like exactly what you just said. It's magic. It's it's lightning in a bottle. It's like you capture something. Also, one thing I want to point out, uh, this record, would you say it was the top four or top five? Well, number two, but out of the top five. It's like nowadays, so many people think you have to make a record that is the drums are just quantized and everything's got to be fucking mechanical. And this record, it just breathes. And, and it's the number five. It's number two. So yeah. so to me, it's like when people want to quantize drums, it's like, you dude, just, just rock and roll. Don't change it. Just let it go. And to well, your point, how interesting is it that the album didn't go number one on the charts, but did but was the number two best-selling song of all time, which means it's all about longevity, 
which says even more about the album, that it wasn't some bang to the top, no disrespect, but it wasn't well, like metal health that goes number one, but doesn't have the staying power. But this also too, like, I bet you there wasn't even really, maybe maybe you shook me all night long, got on the radio. We could probably go through and find out, but it's not like they it is now where they're releasing three or four singles. This all is word of mouth and touring and the amount of goodwill and the fan base they had pre-Bond Scott that just exploded with these songs and with this record, you know, to make them into the biggest rock and roll band in the world today. Do you think that when um, people who come after Back in Black and they find them on, I don't know, the Ball Breaker record or whatever, do you think <clears> it's like <throat> people go, well, dude, you got to go get Back in Black because that's the Absolutely. epitome of ACDC. So do people say that with other bands? Like, do people go, oh, you got to get that Black album by Metallica? Or, or do they say, you got to get that Master of Puppets record? That's my, like, Led Zeppelin. Well, I, do you go get Zeppelin 4? You have to have that. But right? I can tell you that from, from my experience with Kiss, and we always make jokes, like, you know, I got into Kiss on Animalize and had no idea that they had even taken the makeup off, vaguely knew of them with makeup, and then went back and discovered Kiss Alive 2 and Kiss Alive. Even though 80s Kiss is the best Kiss era, we can have another <laughs> come back, come back. <laughs> anyways as, as just, we start, just jokes as we start to to wind down here um once again it, it, the, the, you'll never hear another rock and roll record like this there'll never be a rock and roll record made that's this influential this big that's not to say there won't be a record that every kid has on spotify or or, or gets you know via streaming but to sell 55 million records for, for a rock and roll band with no frills, no gimmick, minimal push at the time. This was a product of, of an era, of its place, but it still holds up today. You could play this for any kid that's into rock and roll, and they will decide that this is a tremendous classic album. The sound of this record needs to be spoken about, too, because whenever you go, uh, you hire an audio guy to do your sound, what do they EQ the system to? Back in black. You know what I Every mean? It's like... Every one of them. It's like if you put on Back in Black, you'll be blasting out of that in PA. And it's like, yeah, that, that's how you do it. You know, this record it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, final question for you guys. What's your favorite song on the record? Shoot the Thrill. Yeah. I got to go with Shoot the Thrill as well. Shoot the Thrill. <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's a tough room. I'm going to have to go Back in Black uh, just, just uh, yeah, just to be different. Yeah. But uh, but I will have to say when Shoot the Thrill came out on the Iron Man and I first saw it in the theater, didn't expect it and it happened. It nudged me towards Shoot the Thrill as number one. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell this. Tony Stark's theme song is Shoot the Thrill. You're good. When uh, when me and Bubba went and saw them, uh, unbeknownst to each other, we went to the garden to see ACDC with Axel and had no idea that we were literally in the same row at the garden. You were there too, Charlie, with Jack Slade and Paul Heyman, <laughs> the most awkward concert goer ever. When they started with Rock or Bust, because it's classic Ace or DC, ACDC, we always start with our new song. And then the second song in the set was Shoot to Thrill. That's when I, that's when I went freaking crazy, man. That was the best. Me, me too. Yeah. I, I, I said after, after the show, we all went, went backstage and we were talking. And we all had this kind of we, – we had this glow about us that we were just so yeah. happy about what we just witnessed. And to me, I'll still say it's like one of my top ten shows. Axel was awesome. Amazing. Was he just, sure was. Wait a minute, yeah. Charlie, you guys went backstage after that? Yeah, we were there. You're a dick, Chris. You said you went home. <laughs> hey, I only had two passes. <laughs> hey, what can I do? 
<laughs> hey, Bubba, I got to catch no, the no, A train. Right. I'll see you later. <laughs> it was a different Chris. It wasn't him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, uh, he went to see Chris Slade is what he was saying. <laughs> Guys, what a, what a great time celebrating the greatest rock and roll record of all time. And one of the, the, the biggest drags of COVID as, as we wind up here was the rumor, I'm sure you guys have heard this, Charlie, you probably know more than, than me, was that ACDC was going to go out on tour this summer uh, with classic, you know, drop the record with minimal notice, and it was going to be with Brian, it was going to be with uh, with Phil Rudd and, and Cliff, kind of the, the, the classic lineup, as classic as you can get. Hopefully, COVID didn't kill the Rolling Stones, and hopefully COVID doesn't kill ACDC, and they'll both be back touring next year. We got to go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Thank you.